Let us pray. Father, take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been involved in teaching theology for a long time, and when you are a priest who uh, is a teacher of theology, uh, you don't usually get to preach on Easter Day. Uh, But I have preached, I think, 20 times on the gospel reading this morning about Thomas, uh, the Sunday after Easter. Uh, But today I won't. I'd like to to share with you this morning uh, some thoughts about the first epistle of John and the passage which we read as the epistle this morning. It's one of, I think, one of the most amazing passages in the entire New Testament. John is uh, is one of those wonderful writers. He doesn't use uh, very much vocabulary. Uh, John's vocabulary is the smallest of any of the writers in the New Testament. And yet the way he uses those words is spectacular. It's like he is taking a diamond and turning it this way and that way so that we can see uh, God's glory reflected in those different facets of the, of the terms which he uses. Terms like light and darkness, uh, the idea that God is love. It's John that says God is love in this letter of First John. Uh, so although John has a very small theological vocabulary, his vocabulary uh, and the way he uses it is probably the deepest of any of the writings of the New Testament. Look how he begins this epistle. Uh, And if you have a a pew Bible in front of you, or if you brought your own Bible to church, which is never a bad idea, uh, turn to the end, to the book of Revelation, and then turn left. Uh, And if you get to the letters of Peter or James, you've gone too far. Uh, Jude would be the first one to the left of Revelation, and then the letters of John. He begins this epistle by saying these words. That which was from the beginning. Now, if you know the Bible, you, this will sound familiar to you because the Bible opens with the words, in the beginning, God. So when John begins his letter by saying, that which was from the beginning, we know what he is talking about. That which was from the beginning is God. There is nothing before the beginning. Uh, John does this to us again in his gospel. He begins the gospel, in the beginning was the word. Just when we're expecting to hear in the beginning God, he says in the beginning was the word. Well, Bible readers think, oh, of course, because when God created the world, he did so by his word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So... In the beginning was the word, makes sense. But then as John goes through his passage, you realize he's not simply talking about some attribute of God. He's talking about a person. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Well, in this one, we're led in for a similar mystery. That which was from the beginning, and right away in the first verse, he gives us a bit of a shock. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That which was from the beginning, that is, the life of God, John says that he and others have seen and heard and touched. Remember what it said in the, in the gospel reading this morning. Uh, Jesus, meeting with his disciples in the upper room, says, As the Father sent me, so I send you. Before the world was made, God the Father and the Son had a plan. In fact, in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross, he's praying for himself and he's praying for his disciples and he's praying for us. He's praying for those who will believe through the word of the disciples. In that prayer, Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, may be with me where I am, to behold my glory which thou hast given me in thy love for me before the foundation of the world. The love that Jesus, the Son, had with the Father before the foundation of the world. We don't get very many glimpses into the life of God in the Bible. The life of God is God's life. If we had too many glimpses of it, we wouldn't be able to understand it anyway. But here we have this little glimpse that before the world was made, the Father and the Son existed in a community of love. We believe in one God, but we believe in one God who is love. And because he is love, he loves another. God in himself is this community of love. But John goes on. <clears throat> yeah, well, John repeats himself several times in this passage. In, in verse 1, he's already said, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, we've touched. And then he says, it, it has been made manifest. And we saw it. God's life has appeared. God's life has been displayed. If you want to know what God's life was like before there was anything else, we have a way to do that. We look at Jesus. God's love, God's life has been made visible, has been made tangible to us. And John says that he and some others, whom he describes as we, have experienced this. We saw it and testify it and proclaim it to you. What do they proclaim to you? The eternal life which was with the Father. 
we have a little problem with this phrase eternal life because we think of eternal life as going to heaven when you die. But here, the phrase eternal life refers to the life of the Father and the Son. Actually, a better translation of this would simply be the life of the ages. The life of the ages which was with the Father was made manifest to us. And then John continues to repeat himself. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you may have fellowship with us. So, two things. First of all, we learn about God's life. And that that life includes the Father and the Son. We also learn that that life has been made manifest, been made tangible, has been displayed for us in Jesus. It can be touched and heard and seen. Jesus invites Thomas to touch him. We're not told that Thomas actually did. Uh, I think if I'd been Thomas at that point, I would not only have said, my Lord and my God, but I would have been on my face. And perhaps that's actually what happened. But Jesus could be touched. In another passage, having to do with the resurrection, Jesus appears to them and says, in effect, yeah, it's me. Got any food? I mean, it, this, is, this is a physical resurrection body. The tomb is empty and Jesus is standing before them. Not only in those years that they walked with him in ministry, but now beyond the grave, he is alive again and is with them. But there's more, John says, because John and others like him who are eyewitnesses to Jesus have proclaimed the message of this one who has been displayed. Isn't that interesting that he says, he, he proclaims this message so that we might have fellowship with you. In other words, just as God spoke at the beginning of creation and the world came into being, so these first eyewitnesses have spoken, they have proclaimed the word about Jesus And fellowship has come into being. The word of the cross is the word of life which creates the church, which creates this fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, God's life is to be shared. God's life is not uh, lived alone, He created the world. In his love. God's life was made tangible in Jesus. And now God's life is going to be shared. With those who believe in Jesus. Our fellowship is with God. Well there's a subtle shift. After verse 4. John says that we are writing this. That our joy or your joy. The Greek texts say both things. and It doesn't really matter does it? Because our joy and your joy are both made complete by the fact of this fellowship which has been created in Christ. Then he says, this is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You see, it would be perhaps uh, 
the end of verse 4 would have been a good place to stop the epistle. I mean, he's talked about the life of God itself and that that life has been made manifest to us and shared with us in such a way that we can join in fellowship with God and with one another together. Uh, Perhaps he could have said, amen, and we would have had a very short first epistle of John. But John also recognizes that hearing that message may create a problem for some of us. If our fellowship is with God the Father and with his son Jesus, if we have fellowship together with him, what about all the problems in us and in the world? And so although God is love and God is light, John says, I better say a few things about darkness and about sin. If you read through the next passage, uh, the next few verses, there is something that stands out. I I have a little exercise I do with first-year students in seminary. I give them a page of the Bible, and they have to read it, and then circle words that are repeated. Very simple exercise. But if you look at words that are repeated, it may give you a clue as to what that particular passage means. Well, let's look at some of this passage. Uh, Verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Did you get the word? Seven times. In fewer than seven verses... The word sin is repeated. Nine times. Oh, I missed a couple. Thank you. Nine times in fewer than seven verses. There is a problem. The one who who hears the message proclaimed that we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with one another, looks around and recognizes the fellowship isn't perfect. The world hasn't been made perfect. There are still problems out there and in here. Sin and sins. Notice it's, it's used in both the singular and the plural. Let me, let me point out a little mistake in the history of liturgy hate to do that. But we have to test all things by scripture, right? There's something we sing at the Eucharist, which is called the Agnes Dei, right? The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Oh, Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. But look up in the New Testament where that comes from. It comes from John chapter 1 in which John the Baptist sees Jesus and points to him. This is what John the Baptist does. That's his job, 
His job is to point to Jesus. John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, here John uses both the singular and the plural. For some reason, when we sing it, we say the sins of the world. I think maybe we've got something we need to correct there, but it may take an entire reformation to do that. (laughs) You see, it's not just my personal sins. It's not just your personal sins. It's not just the sins of the whole world put together that Jesus dies for, although he does. Jesus dies for the sin, singular, of the world. All of it. The whole thing. All evil and death and darkness is taken up by Jesus on the cross. Because it is the cross that deals with our darkness. If we walk in the darkness... Uh, if we have a fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The cure to walking in darkness is not to try harder to walk in the light. The cure to walking in the darkness is the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. Jesus has taken it. Jesus has done it. It is finished. We walk in the light. Now, it doesn't mean that all our sins are gone. But in fact, he says, we deceive ourselves if we say we have no sin. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this idea of cleansing from sin is here. But he goes farther in talking about the cross. In verse 2 of chapter 2, he says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Now, the translation we read this morning says that he is the atoning sacrifice. Uh, It's not a bad translation. It does help us to understand this term, which I just used, propitiation. There's actually a huge dispute about the translation of this word. Uh, It's been a matter of much dissension. But let me tell you, I'm in the pulpit, right? So I'm proclaiming the word of God. Let me tell you what I believe the word of God says about this word. The word appears only a few times in the New Testament. But it's a word that has to do with a sacrifice that is presented by human beings before a God in order to remove that God's wrath. The word propitiation means the removal of wrath. Now, some people have felt very uncomfortable with that and have decided to use the word expiation. The debate has been lost unfortunately, for those folks. Expiation means the removal of sin, and that's there too in this word, but it doesn't just mean the removal of sin. Jesus does more than act as the victim who expiates sin. He is the victim who propitiates. 
the sin which we commit, the sin which is committed by everyone in this world, invokes the wrath of God. This is something we don't talk about very much. It's something perhaps we should talk about a little more. Jesus' Jesus' actions on the cross remove the wrath of God. You see, God is angry. God hates sin. When the genocide was going on in Rwanda, there was amazing language being used by the popular media. And in books that were being written about the genocide in Rwanda. There's one book written by a Canadian journalist called The Angels Have Left Us. There was an article in Time magazine which had the heading, There Are No Devils Left in Hell. They are all in Rwanda. See, even the secular press had to resort to spiritual language about hell and devils and angels in order to explain the evil that was going on there. Similar kinds of language have been used to describe the Holocaust in the 1930s and 40s in Germany. There is such a thing as evil. There are actions which destroy human beings, which destroy God's creation. And God is not simply sorry about that. God is not, doesn't simply look at those things and shake his head. God looks at those things and says, a death is required. A sacrifice is required to make this right. But rather than use someone else's sacrifice, God himself comes. Before, remember, before the world was made, before the foundation of the world, the Son and the Father had a perfect fellowship of love together. Jesus coming to the cross and bearing the wrath of God does not mean that Jesus is the good guy and God the Father is the bad guy. God the Father and God the Son suffer in the giving of Christ on the cross. They give themselves for us. Jesus the Son suffers as the incarnate Son of God. And God the Father suffers as the one who gives up the Son for us. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. The one who has taken away not only our sins, but the wrath of God, which was deserved because of them. Nothing that we have done can remove our sins or their consequences, only what God has done in Jesus. And so this passage talks not merely about our sins being cleansed, but our sins and God's wrath being removed from us so that we can have fellowship with God. 
it was perhaps enough that in the first paragraph of this letter, John tells us about the possibility of this shared life with God. But in the second paragraph, he talks about the cost of that shared life of fellowship with God. And the cost is the cross. The cross is God's life poured out for us in the incarnation, life, and death of Jesus. But Jesus didn't merely die. Jesus rose. And so the life of God is now shining and growing and increasing in the world as the gospel is being spoken. That which we have seen and heard and touched, we proclaim also to you. Well, in the gospel reading this morning, Jesus says to Thomas, uh, blessed are you who have seen and believe, but more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that's us. I can't stand up and say that I have seen and heard and touched Jesus, not in the way that John could say this, but I can say this. I share in the same fellowship as John shares in. And all of us here this morning who believe in Jesus share in that same fellowship. And as we go around about our daily life and work and share the gospel in word and in deed with those around us, the darkness flees. And the light of Christ comes to those who are open to receiving it. Not only so that their sins can be forgiven, not only so that the wrath of God can be removed, but so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this brief glimpse of the life of God. We thank you for displaying this life in Jesus. We thank you for sharing this fellowship, this life with us, binding us together in the fellowship of the Father and the Son. Fill us with your spirit that we may proclaim this message in all that we say and all that we do. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.